everybody. Your- Welcome to... Wait, what was that? I was going to ask you if you needed theme music. I'm sorry. Well, we'll, get some theme, we'll get some theme music eventually. At some point, we can actually afford some theme music. That'd be great. Boom, 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 boom. Go. Did you hear that podcast? Podcast. Did you hear that podcast? Did you hear that podcast? Podcast. Hey, gang. Welcome to Did You Hear That? The only podcast that listens to other podcasts so that you don't have to, unless you really want to. I'm your host, Maurice Carlos Ruffin, and this is our very first episode. I'm joined here by my co-host and compatriots, Emily Strong and Jody Nwendo. Today, we have a very exciting show for you. We are going to talk about a very interesting podcast. But before that, we're actually going to start with a little bit of uh, podcast news and some other ramblings about podcasts we've enjoyed recently. I did want to ask before we get into the actual show today, our first episode, have you ever heard about some of the news in podcasting? Um, there's two things. I'll start with one right quick. I just heard that uh, Spotify is now launching uh, a podcast subscription service. Maybe this will be helpful for us. Unlike Apple, they will not take a cut from their creators. Do you have any opinion on that, either one of y'all? Huh. Oh, cool. No, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, a lot of these different companies are making a lot of moves to like consolidate or move things around to get more market share. So it sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I know Spotify was really trying hard to get into the podcast game, but um, they had been doing it through their music app. So uh, actually, I think it's a good idea for them to separate the two, you know, separate out the music from the podcast. Is it going to be a separate player? You know, that that's a good question. I'm not I'm not sure how they're setting it up, but I mean, I feel like in the past year, Spotcast is uh, Spotcast. Spotify, they should change the name to Spotcast. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they had that huge $100 million um, Joe Rogan contract, which was like a big surprise for a lot of people. And this move, to me, seems like they're really like trying to get as much market share out of Apple as possible, which is very interesting. Well, and I know you're a Spotify diehard. Like, it's your favorite platform, I think, right? Um, it is. No, I'm not that loyal. I mean, I've probably used three different podcast services in the past year. But right now, I'm definitely doing the Spotify thing. See, I like Spotify for music. Music, but not so much for podcast. You know, well, I, why I, is that? I don't know. Just I, 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 legit, I'm not even sure why. Because when they first were trying to push podcasting, I was like, "Uh, get away from me!" <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? With, with that, with that podcast stuff, it just—I don't know. It just don't come at me with podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it just felt. I, I don't. I, I can't even explain why. You know, I don't even have a good reason why. It just Spotify is not a place that I want to listen to podcasts. Keep you know? your peanut butter out of my chocolate. Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually, I, I feel the same way. Like I don't enjoy the the player for Spotify. So like Maurice, you send me links for podcasts all the time and they're always like Spotify link. And I almost always go and see if I can listen to them on um, Stitcher is my preferred platform. Although I do listen to stuff on other platforms. Maybe it's just because Stitcher was like the first platform I really got into podcasts on. So I'm just used to their player. And but it just seems more flexible to me that I can like rewind if I need to. And it just seems more intuitive and flexible to me. But I will say this, a friend of mine just started launched a new podcast and it was only available at least the only platform that I had that I could listen to it on was Spotify and and I was like okay I, I you know so I had to get a little bit more familiar with it well you know for me I was a Spotify guy I mean not Spotify I can't say it right I was a Stitcher guy for like two straight years and I really liked it I mean I had probably a hundred shows you know queued up but it was kind of glitchy for me mm. it was right around the time you was you were like giving me some shows to listen to and I was like well they're not even on Stitcher let me try Spotify and see what happens I think the fact that Spotify doesn't require you to like subscribe to use their use their app. I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty good. So now I've been doing that almost exclusively. I still use Stitcher for my New Yorker fiction and New Yorker um, writer's mouth, whatever they call it, for those two podcasts because you can't get those on Spotify. Mm-hmm. I like my Spotify. Before that, I used a really obscure one called the Castbox app, 
which was even glitchier than Stitcher was. <laughs> What's your favorite platform, Jody? Well, I've been using Podcast Addict, which basically just takes off of iTunes or whatever the Apple Podcast thing is. It just basically siphons off of the Apple Podcast app or whatever service. Like I'm, I don't, I'm not like logged in or anything. So anytime I change my phone or if something happens, like I've lost all my podcasts because I have a queue. I have a long ass queue. <laughs> of podcast episodes like i'm at like a hundred something now and it'll for one reason or another will get wiped away and i'll i'll lose all my podcasts and i gotta go back through and be like wait do i like this podcast which and in a way it's good because there's a lot of podcasts that i have stored and in queue that i'm probably never actually going to listen to so when i when it does get wiped away then if i don't fiend for it you know if i'm not like oh i'm missing this up this podcast and i probably wasn't gonna listen to it anyway so you know hopefully that won't be the fate of this podcast people have it in their queue and just never get to listen to people should like us a lot i hope please like us and subscribe <laughs> and all so that. the other news i wanted to bring up and this happened i think like just two or three days ago dave Chappelle has signed a huge contract with luminary and um they don't give like the exact dollar amount but it really sounds to me like they're sort of positioning him in the same spot um, as rogan over at spotify so it's like spotify has rogan luminary has Chappelle, and i don't mind saying like i think luminary is like one of the least of the major platforms like they they've tried and tried and tried and tried but really haven't done that well for themselves um so i'm curious about that like i wonder Will it, will, it even, will it even like be here in a year with Chappelle? I've never even heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of Luminary, but I I guess I thought that they were producing. Well, I mean, they are producing podcasts. Well, I mean, I guess all of the platforms actually have their homegrown, like, you know, in-house. It's like they're production studios and they're also channels. Like if you're thinking about like sort of a TV model. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting world podcasting from what I've seen where it's both, you know, a production company and also a channel. Because they have a bunch of different, they have a podcast network. Yes. Right? And in fact, I left out maybe the most important thing about it is Luminary is different because they're one of the few that has like a real paywall. And so they were like leading into, into that whole model of you got to pay to hear any of this content. And they're still doing that. And I think it's one of the reasons why they have like not really taken hold like some of these other production companies or, um, or apps. Right. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I thought you were talking about Luminary as a um, player service or whatever podcast service. But yeah, I think I've heard of them as a network. As a network. Yeah. Hey, Maurice, um, you're one of the reasons why I got into podcasts. I mean, I know you know that, but I'm just telling the listeners. And now, Jody and I have a podcast together called Civic Shaw, which we've had you Shameless on. Jody's got a couple Great of. Show. Thank you. Jody has got a couple of podcasts that he has um, without me and I have a couple that I'm pitching. And so now we're, we're deeply invested in podcasts. This is like, I keep thinking of like maybe like circa 2010 and you're like, you got to listen to this podcast. And I'm like, what's a podcast? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I could be honest and say like, I really didn't really understand podcasts until like 2016 or 17, even though I did tend to listen to a lot of content online already. So like if I was doing NPR, I just put it on like my iPad or my phone which I guess was kind of a podcast, but, you know, it kind of wasn't. Yeah, it's an interesting medium, I think, because it feels organic in a weird sort of way, although I don't know that that's necessarily true. Like, it's been around for a while. I mean, in some ways, like, some podcasts are no different than just, like, traditional radio shows. And a lot of radio stations, you can see them kind of rebranding, like, radio shows as podcasts or, you know, having having stuff that happens live on their um, radio shows, sort of, like, with extra content releases as podcasts. But it's kind of like how some of these poor... Um, old school TV stations are like trying to get into streaming. So you have like 
Peacock for NBC, mm-hmm. or you have like um, old movie studios trying to do like Paramount or whatever they are. And it's like, guys, we can see that you're just a TV station in disguise as a streaming service. <laughs> well, I have Peacock and I got it basically because they were launching Peacock and I was almost done watching The Office for the first time. I got into The Office last year during the during the lockdown. I asked a friend of mine, I was like, what's like a comfort show for you? And, and he was like, The Office, definitely The Office. And I'd had people recommend it to me for years, but had never watched Wait, the it. The first and time you saw The Office was this past year? Last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I watched the whole... The whole... <laughs> I was listening to an audiobook recently where one character found out that the other character had never watched The Office and I was like, oh my god, that was me last year. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a fully grown adult um, when I watched <laughs> The Office for the first time and it's weird because I totally see why it has the cultural sort of adoration that it has now. <laughs> see, and I, I don't know who I would be if I had watched it when it was like on air live for Oh the my first lord, time. you know, I think about that all the time Emily, like all these like sort of these things that are part of the monoculture mm-hmm. and I think about like what kind of person I had I would have been if I had known about these things at the time that they were really popular yeah kind of disturbing you know like I didn't really watch Lost I didn't really watch The Sopranos I didn't really watch Game of Thrones mostly because of time and place and it's like would you have been a different person had you been like really involved in paying attention and like, having conversations with everybody about you know what's funny it's like I was like an early adopter for a lot of shows that got cancelled too soon like it, back in like the, the TV day like pre-streaming and all that stuff like I was just talking about this with some people at the coffee shop Firefly Firefly exactly that was the one so I think it was after Firefly that I was like I need to be a late adopter to stuff because I I can't be heartbroken every time a show isn't given the proper chance. Like I, I watched my so-called life, like every, you know, every week with my parents, you know, which is, it's a weird thing to watch with your parents, but, <laughs> but and it, and it was only one season. You know, that's the thing about podcasts that's so special though, is that like, because a lot of the production values are lower on podcasts, a lot of sh- podcasts that wouldn't have lasted had managed to find their footing over yeah. a long period of time. I just want to say like, just for the sake of the audience, I have so much respect for the podcasters who started before people knew what podcasts were. So whether it's like, a Dan Carlin or a Debbie Millman who is currently in relationship with um, Roxanne Gay or whether it's um, Joe Rogan like they were doing it when it was nothing even like a Roman Mars or somebody like that it's like they, they were so early into it they wouldn't have like gotten any support until they built it themselves and now you know they're giants yeah. of the industry yeah, that's a really good point and I love that you brought it back to podcasts because we were talking about TV shows and and that was some excellent hosting on your part well I'm just doing my job man <laughs> segway speaking of doing my job so um, I guess at this stage in our show's history the first episode a lot of this is sort of beta testing but i think we're going to have a segment every week which is did you hear that short take and that's going to be where either one or two of the co-hosts who are not the sort of main uh presenters of the week will shortly discuss podcasts they heard recently that they really really enjoyed so i do want to turn to to jody and just ask is anything you heard in the past week or so that you know you really really liked a lot so i have another podcast a sports podcast called versus and i it's where i take two mythical I, I make mythical matchups two teams or two fighters or whatever and pit them against each other so i'm doing one for sugar ray leonard versus aaron Pryor, and there's a podcast that i listen to for boxing called world championship boxing and this guy robert silva is like a walking boxing encyclopedia and he does 
greatest performances of like all of these legendary fighters. So I went back and I listened to the Sugar Ray Leonard episode and I'm going to listen to the Aaron Pryor episode that he did. But if you're into boxing, you have to listen to this podcast. This dude is like, he, he's a, I don't know, he's a historian. He, he's a walking historian when it comes to boxing. I was going to say, Jody, that that was amazing how you gave your, your own podcast a shout out while mentioning another podcast. <laughs> shameless like, plug, shameless plug. Brilliant. If it's not your thing, don't worry about it. No hard feelings. Well, I, can I, mean? give, I can give anything a listen, but maybe maybe one of you should make that your pick for the week so I have to listen to it. <laughs> I, mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty interested. You know, as somebody who kind of only understands in boxing, to defeat King Hippo, you got to punch him in the belly. That's really all I know about boxing. Right. <laughs> this sounds pretty good to me. I think I might actually have to check out a few of the episodes of this versus. And check out the um, World Championship to Boxing Podcast as well. That guy, I, 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 what I like about the podcast is he, always, he makes it very personal. He got into boxing because of his father. And so like throughout the podcast, he's like, me and my father, we were watching this fight. And, you know, my father thought that this was going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And he was right. Or, you know, we, we both thought that blah, blah, blah. And then it was completely different. And, you know, whatever, whatever. He makes it very personal. I, I love that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I, I guess I'm on the hook right here for, for a short take on something that I enjoyed this week. So, you know, I think like most fans of podcasting, you have this certain shows that you, you're always really excited when it pops up in your feed. And I was telling um, Emily and Jody that this, this one show that has like this sort of irregular schedule, like they like they'll go like every 10 days or 14 days. This last time they were gone for like almost a month and it's called Red Scare. And Red Scare is such a strange show because the two hosts are these um, New York based young women, Dasha and Anna. And they're both kind of like Russian descended uh, people. And the show to me is so interesting because they will like talk about things that nobody else ever brings up in podcast. So this past week, they decided to cover a scandal involving the philosopher and linguist uh, Foucault. And you would think, wow, they don't like talk about like his philosophy or his language. Well, no, they were talking about a scandal in France where a bunch of French conservatives have decided that in order to attack liberals, they have to take out Foucault by saying he was a pedophile back in like the 60s and 70s. And therefore, cancel culture can't exist because in some ways they argue he sort of invented cancel culture. So it's like a bank shot off the side of a wall into a goal and it bounces off the ground and then into your lap. It's just so many different like curves. But I was like going on into like rabbit trails. Like, you know, who is, you know, who is, who is who called again? You know, who is this French conservative? What magazine was this in? And so for me, it's just always one of these shows where somebody who likes so like obscure information and like strange stuff that you just wouldn't find anywhere else. I really got into it. But then they always had in pop culture. So the other two segments were about A, and people come up many times, I'm sure, in the show. Uh, Kanye West has now publicly announced that he is dating again. <laughs> and and they said, yeah, you know, like they were sort of joking, but they were sort of not joking. They were like, you know, Kanye's probably going to come out pretty soon. That's number one thing. Come out? Yes. What? Yeah, I, I should preface this by saying like a big element of the show is that Dasha and Anna, the show is about, is about culture first and politics second. So a lot of what they're dealing with is like almost satirizing cancel culture and those kind of things. So they'll say inappropriate things on purpose. <laughs> sometimes they mean it, sometimes they don't mean it. But yeah, they definitely said, yes, we just saw that uh, Kanye has definitely 100% said that he is looking for his next relationship and he wants to be with an artist. And they took from that, they think he, he's coming out. Well, wait, Kanye is still a billionaire, right? Because, um, I mean, if so, I'm available, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, so they took from him saying he wanted to be with an artist that he ha- that he's gay and he wants to be with a man. Like, can only men be artists? Are they misogynist? They are dealing with that stereotype, which is the idea in, in a lot of Western culture that if you're quote unquote artistic, if you're literary or whatever, or even like if you do like have a, the Kanye style of like the pop collar and the bright colors and the tight pants, those things all signifiers, you know, wrongfully in some parts of the culture as being queer. For some, it is queer. But yeah. it, does, it doesn't mean that you're queer actually. And so I just think they were sort of playing with that idea. And it's ended the segment by saying, yeah, we don't really know that, but still. Well, and my understanding is, is that queer is playing with gender, you know, stereotypes, playing with sort of gender expressions that, you know, if you're indulging or expressing these instincts or these desires or these playful, you know, creative desires that are like outside of like what your culture deems your gender expression, yes. then that is, I think in my understanding, that is queer. It's not necessarily gay. I think that really they just like to make fun of Kanye and side with the Kardashians. That's kind of their thing. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's funny that they're not siding with the Kardashians in a way. I mean, I don't, I didn't listen to the episode, but like Kim Kardashian, whether you like her or not, is an artist. She's just an artist of a different medium. Oh my God, Emily. Oh my God, Emily. Oh my God, what? They said the exact same thing. Oh, did they? Okay, good. <laughs> but they were like, but wait a minute, he just had an artist. And one of them was like, wait, wait, Kim artist. is not an artist. He was just with an artist, not had an artist. A woman is not something you have. Jody, why would you say that, bro? (laughs) (laughs) Your voices are very distinct. People will be able to tell you apart. I can tell you apart. My bad. Can I I imitate Jody now? I'm not even going to try. But it's hilarious that you said that because they said the exact same thing about, about like, Kim Kardashian. Her entire persona has been, like, sort of building this sort of artistic presentation of herself. So why would he not want to be with somebody like that? Well, since you've already had me listen to a Joe Rogan podcast for free, I should say, um, I didn't even have have to listen to it and I did I think you should pick an episode of Red Scare when it's your turn but this week it's my turn because you guys let the lady go first um, which I really appreciate sure, yes sure. you're very very good southern <laughs> gentleman I really miss Andre. <laughs> Hey, y'all said Emily should go first, and who was I to argue with you? <laughs> I think this is fitting, actually, because I've dabbled in podcasts before, but last year I fell hard for my first podcast, and this was the podcast that really drew me in, not just to being a podcast listener, but I was listening to an episode of their show when I got the idea for Civic Straw, the podcast that Jody and I co-host, where we've had Maurice on as a guest. So this show is kind kind of like, you know, my first podcast relationship. It was Jaddy's wife that said this earlier when we were talking. She was like, well, don't all podcast listeners just want to have friends? And I genuinely feel like the podcast hosts of the show are my friends and they just don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) With no further ado, I will say that we are going to talk about an episode of... You're wrong about with Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. So I, was, I said I was going to tell you how I found this show, right? It's the origin story of my relationship with the show is, I think, key. So I was having a conversation with a teenager, and I don't remember why we got started talking about this show. I mean, this topic, but I said something like, do you know what the bystander effect is? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, so you know the story of Kitty Genovese? And, and he was like, yeah. And then I was like, well, tell me what you know about it. And he told me about it. It almost felt like word for 
word what I knew about it. And I have a horrible memory, as you guys both know. And I was remembering details from the story. And I was like, how do I know these details? How would a teenager know about Kitty Genovese? Because that happened before not only they were alive, but I was alive. And I just had this like weird feeling like of almost like a maturian candidate kind of thing. Like, have I been programmed to know what I think I know about Kitty Genovese and the bystander effect? And so I did some Googling and I found like one of the, the, the results that I found was an episode of You're Wrong About called Kitty Genovese and the Bystander Effect. The way that You're Wrong About works is like the title feeds into the title of the episode. So you're wrong about Kitty Genovese and the Bystander Effect. And so I listened to the episode and I just fell so hard for these podcast hosts and the, the whole format of their show where they basically one of them does a lot of research and then tells the other one what they've discovered and the other one tells them before they start like this is what I think I know about the situation and then the one who's done the research is like well here's how you're wrong here's and then they do this deep dive and they're both journalists they're both really really good at deep dive research and fact checking and they're really critical of journalists and journalism and how sensational it's gotten and how fact checking just isn't a thing often I was actually since I was doing a little background research I saw on their Wikipedia page that they intentionally don't have sponsors for moral reasons because they are critiquing journalism and other mediums of news and information and so they didn't want to feel beholden to any of these platforms or mediums so I picked the most recent episode which is you're wrong about political correctness and I forced y'all to listen to it and I had an agenda (laughs) having you guys listen to this episode not only because it's Basically, I was like, well, it's the most recent episodes so that works, but also, and how do you pick? I love all their episodes. How do I pick just one for us to talk about? But there is an agenda. Can you guys guess what my agenda was for having you listen to this episode in particular? Oh, this is going to be good. What could it possibly <laughs> be, Emily? <laughs> no, really, try, guess. I think you both know. I'm going to say it's the liberal agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would assume that we're going to get into a cancel culture. Probably, because on Civic Shawl, Jody and I have an ongoing conversation about cancel culture. And I think we've drawn Maurice into the debate and we've all talked about it before. But what were your takeaways from this episode that you listened to? Well, first of all, I want to say I've enjoyed them for a little bit. Um, I think it's a fantastic show. I like the fact that they take such a different approach to history, which I, I should say it is a little bit like Malcolm Gladwell's um, podcast about history. Um, but mm-hmm. what I really like most about them is that he's really short and she's really tall. <laughs> you can't see that on the podcast, though. Can you hear that in their voices or something? Well, I mean, they have a pretty strong presence on like Twitter and other social media. So I, I looked them up and, you know, they're very interesting, intelligent people. So I just happened to see them I'm like, wow, she's super duper tall. She's like six feet tall. <laughs> No, but seriously, like my main takeaway from the episode, I, I really liked the way that they like went back. They spent a lot of time in the 90s and they were talking about how that was a period we had a lot of conservatives who were making it a point to look at universities and other parts of the culture and say, look, these liberals are trying to control our language. They're trying to control our minds. It's totally unfair. And that's kind of like the and, and what they really did was they said, well, you know, if you look at it, if the conservative argument is that liberals are trying to shut down speech, if you look at the actual outcome, you saw a lot of conservatives shutting down speech. You saw like um, Christian conservatives going to universities and saying you can't have a certain kind of statue or you can't have certain kinds of presentations in classes. You can't have a naked woman be a model in an art class. And so I just thought it was very interesting how they showed that. And they also showed how a lot of those fears that conservatives had in the 90s didn't pan out. Um, That a lot of the sort of, you know, we're going to be forced to say or spell women with with a Y didn't really happen. And so I I love that sort of perspective of how in the the regular news cycle we'll hear an idea and it sort of never gets resolved. But they kind of go, no, this is how it's resolved over the past 30 years. I mean, it's just not 
a thing anymore. Yeah. It's not it's no longer yeah. about professors who are liberals in university mm-hmm. and agenda. It's more about politics and other ways. Uh, I saw that a little differently. So yes, we don't spell women with a Y. But one of the things they said was that conservatives were saying in the nineties, you know, the liberals are trying to push this Marxist agenda. Well, what do we have with the Bernie Sanders political campaign and now AOC and all of those? Though they're pushing Marxist ideas. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's what the conservatives were afraid of. And here we are with democratic socialists pushing socialist ideas like, you know, uh, Medicare for all and, you know, this, that and the other. Yeah, you're not wrong about that, Jody. But one thing I think that's key. I did cut you off. I'm no, go ahead, go ahead. One thing I think that's key about that, when you say that conservatives have been accusing liberals of pushing an agenda, right? What you're mimicking in that argument is you're mimicking their argument, which is that they have no power. They're the real victims. But as Michael Hobbs said in the in the podcast, conservatives have been waging a war against college educations for 70 years, right? That's early on in the episode. So this is like part of it. It's like they're telling people, you know, like the liberal elite, the liberal elite, you know, they're, they're so smart. They're going to talk down to you and all that stuff while sending their children to these schools to get an education and then arguing that that college is bad. And I think that you're both wrong about like, see what I did there? <laughs> like, my personal takeaway, like, I, I totally take their arguments. And like I said, I really respect this show a lot. You're wrong about it. I felt this This was one of the few times where I felt like they were leaning towards, I won't say an agenda, but towards something that's not very surprising. My personal political takeaway is that both sides are perpetually con- trying to cancel the other side. That's like what we do in politics. You're trying to obtain power and you're trying to dampen the power of your opponent. So, you know, for me, I'm just thinking like, all right, well, sure, you know, conservatives are trying to cancel us for like, you know, having naked women be made models in schools and we're trying to cancel them for like saying all lives matter. To me, it's like itchy and scratchy. It's just like a, it's an ongoing thing. I like their analysis on the one hand of like, oh, this is the origin of the, the concept of date rape in the, in the culture and like sort of bringing that back into my mind. But a lot of other things kind of like, uh, I kind of see it, but really it's a both sides thing and not to be a both sider. But you are a both sider. No, and I, I agree with Maurice. It is both sides. But my critique isn't so much in what the conservatives and what the liberals are actually doing. My critique is about what the podcast hosts were doing, where they were, uh, how ridiculous that they would think that Marxist ideas would be stewing in these liberal universities. How ridiculous. <laughs> well, no, it's not ridiculous. It wasn't ridiculous. You know what I mean? And and we see the- hey, Jody, yeah. I want to piggyback and I want to say, you know, now that you mentioned it, the one thing that felt different to me as somebody who's probably heard maybe a dozen or so episodes of this show that I really enjoy, I felt like Michael Hobbs, for a change, he sounded way more passionate than normal. Like, I've heard him talk about like the space shuttle crashes and the DC snipers and JonBenet Ramsey and normally like like they'll get a little excited like it's part of like this sort of presentation but like he was lit the entire time and so I, I felt like he was really making more of like a political statement just because of that. It felt very political to me. It felt very so, skewed and biased. Well, I mean they're not pretending to be unbiased. They they don't lie about their biases and I think that that's what I really do appreciate about them. They're not for everybody but they don't lie about their biases, right? And they say they talk about their research on the show. So Michael Hobbs talked about trying to find evidence of what, you know, conservatives were claiming during political correctness. And, you know, like one of the things that I, I, because I did make notes about this, was that one of the articles that he had, you know, Sarah read the cover of a magazine or whatever, they talked about like, oh, now you're going to have to talk about animal companions instead of, you know, or, you know, (laughs) pets. And that, and that was basically always satire. Um, Just like, like Maurice has referred to conservatives actually had like a conservative Christian backlash against 
nude models and art classes at universities. But there was like, I sounded like a Saturday Night Live sketch where they were they were saying that it was feminists, like liberal feminists, arguing that it was demeaning of women. Yeah, that was, that was a Kids in the Hall episode. Oh, Kids in yeah. the Hall. Okay. They yeah. Pulled. As they pointed out in this show, like by doing the research, the article about the professor who, like there was all these articles that were saying he was forced to resign or cancel his class when that wasn't what happened. All of the ways that this was depicted and painted and then how that became the consciousness of like what people knew about the story. And then it wouldn't even become like a, let's go run down the facts. Like what I, you know, what I did when I was like, wait a minute, why do I know these specific things about Kitty Genovese? I started, I just basically realized that I had memorized an advertisement essentially in the case of Kitty Genovese like there was something that someone wanted me to know about the Kitty Genovese case and I had somehow or another memorized the facts that somebody wanted me to know and they were not true that the bystander effect is not real because for instance people would say like all these people heard her get murdered and nobody in- uh, intervened people did intervene then people would be like why didn't anyone call 911 911 didn't exist you know it actually 911 was created partially because of the Kitty Genovese case also the newspaper article that came out immediately following Kenny Genevieve's death were like, you know, the facts were given to them by the police chief. There was no other research. They talked about this. Michael Hobbs basically said, here's your, you know, your Jeff Foxworthy, you know, your um, a moral panic if. And one of the big parts that I took away from that is if there's very, very low stakes. But in journalism in particular, there should not be, we should be as unbiased as possible, right? And I do appreciate that even though Sarah and Michael are freely expressing their opinions about, you know, conservatives and and what they've been doing, Michael is doing in-depth research, trying to investigate the claims, trying to see if there's any truth to this. And he's not finding any truth to it. He's he's basically saying like, there's outlier cases, but the conservatives are acting like one outlier case is is an imperative. Like somebody in a position of power is making me do something when it's literally like one person said, maybe let's spell women with a Y now, you know? And they're like, but now they're coming for our language. You know, I had had comments about that as well because how do you know as a reader as if i'm reading a you know newspaper online article whatever how do i know whether this is an isolated incident or is this a trend you know so we were talking about the journalist should tell you the journalist should tell you like i looked for other cases of this and this seems to be isolated like that's what i like about this show is they're actually taking to task journalism like the the industry in which they exist it's a joke but it's also true where they're saying like maybe we don't have to like write the first paragraph that grabs you. Maybe we can write a first paragraph that gently taps you on the shoulder. There's really not a way. Can I ask a question? There, wait, there's there's really not a way to remove that bias because let's take the cancel culture that's that's going on now. Um, so h- how would we frame it? Would would we say you know I, I did the research and there were 50 professors that got fired this year because of some cancel culture related thing? Whoa, that sounds like a lot. You know what I mean? Is that a lot or do we say? But see, that's the thing is the that's point, a false statement. Percent of professors were were fired. Okay, well that doesn't sound like a lot. But then which one, whichever one we put in there, is part of the bias. You know, it's we're spinning a narrative depending on the type of the the way we present the information. Well, I think that's that's another thing because you're what you're basically talking about is sloppy journalism. Like to say that somebody got fired because of cancel culture is inaccurate. Nobody ever gets gets fired because of cancel culture. I mean, yeah, I I was shortcutting. (laughs) They get fired, you know, because their universities, their their organizations are nervous that they will be canceled or there will be repercussions legally, that kind of thing. But they don't get fired because of cancel culture. 
culture. Like I, I cancel was, culture I was, I was is not shortcutting like, Emily, so I didn't have to say like. I know, but that's exactly you just did it. You just did a fantastic. You just made it a fantastic example of what happens in journalism, though. In the in the interest of shortening things and making them punchier, people basically make an exaggeration that becomes a lie. Uh, what do you want to say? Oh, Can I ask a general question? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I feel like we were back on uh, <laughs> We're going to be arguing a little bit. That's why you're the host because you're the mediator between the two of us. So let, let's like let's go up to like thirty thousand feet for a second though, because one thing I found kind of different about this episode of You're Wrong About is that usually they'll like they'll bring up a topic from history from the past and they'll say, "Hey, you know that thing? It's not really that thing. In fact, it's probably the opposite of that thing." So like with the with the Kitty Genovese story, it's like, "Yo, you think it's like this this poor lady who was you know being attacked and not helped by anybody?" But here's what really happened. I I thought going into this cancel culture episode, they were going to go, oh, you know, this cancel culture thing you've been hearing about for the last 30 so years, it's not really happening. But they didn't do that at all. So the question I have for hey, y'all hey, is- Well, this isn't a cancel culture episode. It's a political correctness episode. They're doing a cancel culture episode. Well, let me rephrase that. So they started talking about PC in the 90s, right? And they, and they go into like the magazine with like- Well, they actually talked about the 60s, 70s, and 80s first, but they spent most time in the 90s. Well, like I, I was struck by that whole sequence when they were talking about the, the young woman who was horrifically i mean mm-hmm. you know this man just raped her and nobody believed her or did anything to protect her right she was the story that made a, other people understand that there was a thing called day rape yes and people still don't quite believe it in a lot of seconds yeah but that was the conversation like when the conversation started nationally do y'all think that like generally speaking like political cor- correctness has increased or decreased in your That's lifetime a question at the very beginning of the episode one of the very first things they said is that political correctness has always been conflated with censorship or surveillance surveillance by a government or a purity test from the beginning political correctness was only ever used as a joke among leftists it was not used earnestly and then it got applied as if it was being applied earnestly which is i think what's happening with cancel culture too like there were young kids like i think mostly like lgbtq plus kids who would say like he's canceled we don't like him anymore he's canceled And they're not people in positions of power, right? But they are on social media, they have a microphone, but they're but they're not they're kids from a marginalized community, all that stuff. So they don't have, you know, any political clout or money or anything like that, like what we would traditionally think of as power. And so like social media really flipped the game in a way because now you you had a microphone, whether you were powerful or not, to say what you felt. And then people took that, like made this label of cancel culture. So they are similar in that sense of, you know, it was a thing that was kind of used internally among the left political correctness, just like canceling somebody was used internally in marginalized communities. And then it was reframed by the opposition as this attack that people were doing to victimize other people. They were they were trying to reframe who was the victim and who had the power by making this thing, this buzzword, this moral panic as as the, you're wrong about hosts love to really dissect moral panic. I thought what they were saying is that the arguments from the 60s, the arguments from the 90s are the same arguments that we're having today is what I thought the point they were making. Like we're calling it cancel culture now, but we called it PC in the 90s and we called it whatever, whatever in, you know, in the 60s. Um, I thought that was their point is that this is just a, a different name on the same issue. They're similar. And I think that that's where they're going with it, that it, that's what it's evolved into, that we don't have, like people aren't using political correctness against each other the way that they used to in the 90s. And now it has evolved and people are like very concerned there are people who are genuinely concerned about cancel 
culture. And I think, Jody, you're among them, you know, I am among them, you're earnestly concerned about that, you know, and I don't know if we should go too far down this road, Maurice, you'll, you're the host, so you'll have to let me know. But I was, re- I recently maybe survived an attempt at cancellation myself. And so it's, it was an interesting experience to kind of be like, is this what people mean when they say cancel culture? And it was essentially what I do think the argument was about was an argument about power. And we weren't really having that conversation. It was I felt empowered to act in a certain way. And then I got suspended from a group of people because they disagreed with my right and my power to act in a certain way. I mean, I would just say like as a a moderator here that like in your situation, I felt like both sides, but they were protecting somebody else. Mm -hmm. And to me, it sounds an awful lot like politics. I mean, you have Democrats versus Republicans. So it's like, well, we're fighting for the rights of our people and yada, yada, yada. they will say things like, right. you know, we're here on behalf of Americans. It's like, well, what's Americans? And that is what PC mm-hmm. and cancel culture, those things all fold into it. Who gets to decide what anything actually means and right. how it affects and it, people? And I think that that's, that's what they kind of hinted at and what I think it, sh- like it should be a debate. Like at one point later in the episode, they were talking about how language evolves, you know, like we decided to keep firefighters, but we didn't keep her story, you know, like that's always happened. Except for um, uh, Terry Gross. She always says yeah. that. <laughs> right, exactly. There'll always be outliers. There, I know a couple of people who use women with a Y still, you know, but that's not become like a traditional thing. Like I am a copy editor on the side and I do not replace her story, you know, history with her story or, you know, women without a Y with a Y. You know, so there becomes like sort of standard things and firefighter is standard. Like I just took a diversity training for my copy editing job because it's with a university and it was actually a really good diversity training. And near the end of it, there was a lot of it's better to use these terms than these terms, right? And Maurice pointed out that this kind of gets close to, to the territory of the you're wrong about episode we were going to talk about. But one of the replacements was instead of chairman, it was chairperson or chair, things like that. So instead of mankind, it would be humanity. And these are these are just being more thoughtful about the terms that we use so they don't exclude people. Like this training was about inclusion, and and it's not everything is going to last forever. Like um, the person who put together the diversity training and I were talking about it. And she said one of the things that has been the biggest challenge was trying to make sure that the the training was up to date with the proper terms, right? But that it was important as the conversation evolves. And that's exactly the point. This should be a conversation. It should be a debate. Everyone is entitled to their opinion and their perspective, right? Sometimes we're going to argue. It's going to be messy. As you learn new things, it's going to feel bad. Like Like Sarah said about that professor who canceled his class because two students told him that they were uncomfortable about some of the terms that he was using and some of the information he was, you know, saying in a mis- misinformed or misguided way in the class. And instead of actually engaging with them in that conversation, he just canceled his own class and then acted like a victim. I have to say, like, his, I think the only uh, professor here, when I heard that, like the dude was so freaked out he canceled his class, I just chuckled because I was like, whoa, dude, he was like a senior professor. We've been teaching for like decades and he just didn't even bother to like engage. Now, nowadays you get fired with a quickness. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I gotta it's true. say, like academia is in, the, is in a moment of flux regardless. They're always in a moment of flux. What was happening with this professor that we're talking about is, you know, things were changing as he was in this privileged position of being a professor where it had been perfectly okay for him to teach the way that he was teaching for so long. Then he thought no one had the right to ever question him. And he wasn't willing to engage and, and change. And that happens a lot, especially with like in the past when we have these like tenured white male professors who've never had to acknowledge somebody else's perspective and be uncomfortable. And they're 
comfort is always privileged. And so so then universities swung in the other direction. They were like, okay, we're always going to privilege the student because they're the ones paying the tuition. Both things are, are too far in one direction. And there needs to be a middle ground, a balance that's struck. And that happens through change. That happens through conversation. That happens through debate. I feel like... Um... That's how it always goes. Th- these movements are on a pendulum. You know, you start off on one end and then it swings past the point of equilibrium to the other side. And then it goes too far the other way. And then you come back, but you don't go back as far, you know, and then you go back is back and forth, back and forth. And at some point, you're going to hit a point of equilibrium. Yeah, Jody, what you're saying about the, the pendulum is is correct. When, when people argue about cancel culture, it feels like they're often arguing that the people who are criticizing people in positions of power have no right to criticize them. That's not my argument. I, I, I can't speak for everybody. I think I sent y'all both that article about that uh, Georgetown professor who was fired, a, a law professor mm-hmm. who was fired because she said year after year, the people who are the lowest rank in the class are usually black people. And she's like, she was like, I oh, sad. And, you know, uh, basically saying, oh, I sad. I don't know what to do about it. Something like that. I don't know. And that was deemed racist and thus fireable. So when I am arguing against cancel culture, I'm arguing about things like that. Like, what about that is racist? What about that is fireable? What about that should she have been canceled over? Like, those are the things that I am arguing about. I'm not arguing about like a Harvey Weinstein. I'm not arguing about, you know what I mean? It's things where we haven't fully wrestled with the new definitions of, you know, the the new rules surrounding race and surrounding sex and gender and all of those things. So we're just willy-nilly just, you know, chopping heads off. I don't like it. I don't I don't like where it will lead. And at some point we'll codify all the new rules, you know, the unwritten rules and all of that and we'll go to a place of stasis and it'll be fine for, you know, another 50 years or so until we have another one of these movements. But until then, I just, I don't like the extremes of the upheaval. I'm looking here at a definition. Political correctness is a term used to describe language policies or measures that are intended to avoid offense or disadvantage to members of a particular groups of society. In public discourse and the media, the term is generally used as a pejorative with an implication that these policies are excessive or unwarranted. Lastly, it says, since the late 1980s, the term has been used to describe a preference for inclusive language and avoidance of language or behavior that can be seen as excluding, marginalizing, or insulting to groups of people disadvantaged or discriminated against, particularly groups identified by their ethnicity, sex, or gender. Well, this is why I like episodes like, you know, like this one from You're Wrong About, because they break down these specific cases, right? And usually when you read an article about like, oh, this professor was fired because she said her black students are usually the lowest performing in her class, you know, there's usually more meat to it than that. And also, you say we as if we as a culture are like approving of like judging this woman and approving of her sentence. And that's not what's happening, right? It's a university that's making a call. Often these people are being called to resign. There's many occasions in which people are calling for people to resign or they're calling for the universities or the institutions to make like a decision quickly. And I was thinking about my recent situation. And part of the problem in my case was that it happened so quickly and there was never any like group consensus or conversation about what had happened. And I do think that there needs to be conversations and that we can't just sort of knee jerk fire people necessarily, but there are some occasions in which it's in which it's warranted. But a lot of 
of times what happens is the universities have received complaints maybe for years against a lot of these professors. And it's just when something goes public that they make the decision to do something like this for right or for wrong. They, they usually take the easy stance, which is like, oh, now you've gotten too much heat on us publicly and nationally. So we shall just fire you to get rid of the problem, right? And they don't have good processes for how to address these things, how to how to try to achieve like a conversation between like students and professors and the public. And you're kind of sort of feeding into the argument in the episode where they were talking about how low stakes it is for everyone in the nation with, with something that's happening at a university. Like, And while it does matter, it's not the most important thing that's happened the same day. And it's a smoke screen for not addressing other things sometimes. While it's great we have conversations about like date rape because of what happened to that woman and the fact that she went public with it or how we've had a reckoning around harassment because of Harvey Weinstein. Those conversations are the important part of what's happening, right? And with a case like Harvey Weinstein, there did need to be consequences for his behavior, right? But at the same time, like that's on a spectrum. That's not necessarily everybody. I loved talking about the NCs and sorry story because I think the reason why it was such a trigger for a lot of the men that I talked to is because a lot of the men that heard the NCs and sorry story hurt, they saw aspects of their own behavior and, and it terrified them. And that was an opportunity for them to learn that maybe some of their past behavior wasn't okay and that they needed to like try to change and, you know, like have conversations with their sexual partners rather than just continuing to sort of act in a way they had learned, you know, through media that, that men are supposed to act. I think that was a really important conversation that we need to continue to have. You know, I know that there are ramifications potentially for someone's career when something like this goes public, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. And everybody who engages in that conversation stands to benefit, you know, and and be better because of the conversation. Yeah, I think we agree on on that. You know, I think we do need conversation. And, and again, I think we're rewriting the rules as we go. You know, what the new rules are going to be, societal rules and norms are going to be, you know, as we go through this movement, as we go through this sea change. Um, so yeah, we definitely need to have the conversations. Um, and I guess these people are just going to be casualties because <laughs> now this Georgetown professor is going to be labeled a racist for the rest of her life, <laughs> you know, and Aziz Ansari is well, going to be... okay, but... <laughs> We need to, I mean, but we need to have conversations about scale, right? Because let's think about Monica Lewinsky, right? That is something that marked her life for the rest of her life. And that was, you know, that was an action that she did. And then she got vilified by the press and by everybody and, you know, every sphere of her life, right? What is the Georgetown professor's name? Oh, I have no idea. Right. So you have no idea. So it's not the same scale. No, it's not the same scale to me or to you, but to her. She has to live that life. So when she goes to apply for another job and they do the quick Google search that they're going to do and it comes up racist, got fired from Georgetown for being racist, you think she's getting another job? I get that as an individual, that's something that she has to be concerned about and all of us have to be concerned about. We don't know what's going to haunt us because someone accuses us of something and that becomes part of the narrative. But we need to have conversation about how that happens and who causes that to happen, right? We need to have conversations about journalistic ethics. We need to have conversations about how to have reconciliation 
reconciliation hearings or debates or conversations so that people in inside the situation can help deem what the result of the situation is so that it, we don't just willy-nilly make these knee-jerk assumptions. And also another thing that you, you the examples that you've been bringing up are universities. And so they're, they're kind of in the same wheelhouse in that they're all acting to avoid like liability for themselves, right? That's not necessarily a laudable thing. I'm not necessarily supportive of that. But in many of these cases, they, they didn't act when they had private, you know, reports from people. And at least in the past, I know this was a thing that happened, like people just, especially women, they just spoke to each other about like that professor does this, or I'm sure black folks did like that professor, you're gonna have to take his class. And he's the worst. He'll say racist shit all the time, you know, or like to women, like that professor is going to say, you know, sexist shit all the time, you just have to let it roll off, you can get out of the class, right? So people would would maybe make anonymous reports about professors or, or not anonymous reports. And there a lot of times wasn't action. It was only sometimes when there was public attention that they would make a knee jerk decision, or what looked like a knee jerk decision to separate themselves from the liability, right? So like, that's not necessarily something I endorse, but we need to think about who's making these decisions, rather than saying like, it's cancel culture, it's cancel culture, it's all wrong and paint it with the same brush. Like, unfortunately, you have to break down the specific cases. And that's one of the reasons I love you're wrong about to bring it back to the topic is because they do they do the research, they break down the specific cases. You know, we can't just talk as if there's this monolith called cancel culture, this villain in a cape and doing these things to people, right? Let's research what happened to that woman, there is a very good chance that someone sympathized with her and offered her a job, she could have very well have landed on her feet. We don't know, let's go see instead of making assumptions thing. And that's I'm not saying that it's okay, that these things happen to people. But what I'm saying is, is that we we need to be more responsible in how we talk about them. And not just say like, Oh, we they they did this, they did this people who complained about her making that statement are not necessarily the ones that like ruined her life, if that's how you perceive it, because they have every right to complain or make a complaint about especially a professor's behavior. So I think we're getting close to the end of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We gotta be right. How do we wrap this up? (laughs) So I just want to ask a sort of a sort of package of questions and y'all can approach it however you want to approach it. First part of the question is this, do you think that cancel culture or rather political correctness is one of these things that is like a perpetual stalking horse for which there really is no solution? And in some ways, maybe we shouldn't be talking about it because as Emily said, these are individual situations that should be dealt with by people on hand. And secondarily, sort of fold into whatever you wrap it up with. How do you feel about political correctness as applied to corporations? Like now we're seeing you know major companies make moves against states saying, we're not going to do anything in your state because we don't like your position on politics, literally, which is a sort of political correctness or a sort of cancel culture type thing. So how do you want to take that? Jadi, start off and Emily. <laughs> well, to answer the first portion of, of your question, I think that we're calling it, uh, you know, it was called political correctness in the 90s. We're calling it cancel culture today. I think it just morphs and changes as society changes, you know, as society grows and, you know, evolves. So we'll be calling it something else in 50 years when there's some new movement that we're not yet aware of, you know? I, I wouldn't say that there's no point to discussing it or trying to hash it out or whatever. There is a, a point to it, but I don't think it's going away. It's, it'll just reform itself in, into something different. Um, in terms of the companies, the companies just follow the dollars, you know? <laughs> so the, the companies have, I, I think they have zero moral stakes in this current movement. And I think they make 
an economic calculus, which is there are a lot of people who will buy our product or think favorably of our product if we say these things. And when they didn't feel that, they didn't say anything. You know, now they feel like the the calculus is on the side of the movement. Let's go with the movement. You know, the companies are companies. They're going to chase the dollars. You know, I mean, it's a good thing that they're on the side that I agree with this time, but they're just as easily on the side that I don't agree with. Just it just depends. Well, okay. So to first answer your question, I think that referring to a movement or an epoch or something that's happening as, you know, political crackness gone awry or cancel culture gone too far is intellectual laziness. And I think that we will always be dealing with it if we don't address it, if we don't actually address what we're actually talking about. I think that if we continue to be scared of consequences, if we tend to be scared of conversations and debates and growth and the discomfort of growth, yeah, we'll be dealing with this in 50 years with a different name. But I don't think that has to be the case. I don't think this is an inevitable part about being human. I think this is like an intentional campaign that people have enacted upon other people in order to like not have a real conversation about something and actually have to address something. So I think that the campaign can be addressed if we actually say, what is it that we're fighting? What is it that needs to be acknowledged and addressed? And we don't have to do this the rest of our life. I mean, we have to have conversations, but we don't have to persecute each other in the name of political correctness or, or cancel culture. We can have conversations with each other that used to be possible. I mean, at least in theory, but I think what's happened is that it has to be acknowledged that there are more people in a position to engage in the conversation than ever before. And that's not okay for some people. Some people want to control who they're in dialogue with and limit who has a right to speak. So those people have got to be canceled or they've got to be encouraged to actually acknowledge that other people are are welcome in the conversation. If they can't welcome them with open arms, they have to just at least shut up and acknowledge that everybody has the right to be a part of the conversation. Even the people that have previously been powerless, the people that haven't had a platform. Podcasting is so popular and so democratic in many ways because the barrier to entry is lower than it was for TV, for instance. We're launching a new podcast. If you compare that to launching a radio station, like I don't even know what the would be or the costs associated with launching a radio station. And so to have a platform to have this conversation and then to, you know, share it with other people and, and, and invite them into the conversation with us would have been impossible for the three of us. So like, let's just look at the medium that we're using, right? It allows more people into the conversation and that's not okay with everybody, but it needs to be okay for us to have these conversations, these uncomfortable conversations. And that's how we move forward. That's, we just, continue to have uncomfortable conversations. If we can learn the lesson on how to do it, then hopefully the conversations get slightly less uncomfortable. And then the second part of what you asked, what was the second part of what you asked? The corporations. Oh, companies. Oh, the corporations. I feel a lot of different ways about it. I feel like it's within their rights to do it, especially since their customers were calling on them to do it or people were calling on them to do it. I do agree with like Stacey Abrams who tried to speak up before, you know, before things were finalized and say, basically you're hurting the employees 
cities. Like I think of, you know, the the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, once people were digitally unmasking participants in that insurrection, we realized that one of the owners of the grocery store chain Rouse's was there that day. And that's a local grocery store chain in Louisiana. And so people were calling on a boycott of Rouse's. And then other people were like, hey, but who is that going to hurt? That especially during a pandemic, that's going to hurt the baggers, the people going and retrieving carts that that's going to hurt the people at the registers, because there's going to be fewer people to support them, you know, or fewer jobs, because there's going to be less work, it's not going to be a repercussion for this man who's a billionaire, it's going to be a repercussion for the people whose jobs are going are to lose, because if business goes down, they're, they're just going to cut people. Ultimately, I, when you think of companies having a political stance, I think of Ben and Jerry's, because they've been pretty supportive of defunding the police for a while, they've been pretty political for a long time, they, you know, they donate part of their profits to organizations, they put out statements like after George Floyd was murdered last year, they put out a, you know, a statement against police violence, and they were one of the first companies to do so. And that's been part of their, their brand for a while. And people love them for that. And it does feel genuine. It doesn't feel like, oh, like, we have to take the stance because our customers are asking us to, you know, it seems like something that's sort of baked into the culture of the company. And I feel like, you know, I mean, it's like Chick-fil-A for one way or another. I don't I love their food, but I haven't eaten Chick-fil-A in years because they are a Christian company. And just there's a variety of things Chick-fil-A has done over the years that I, I disagree with. Is that canceling? I mean, I chose not to spend my money with that company. That's a boycott. I don't agree with your policies and and your company's stance, you know, religiously and and politically. So I'm not going to support your company, right? So I don't know. I mean, I think every company has a right, you know, to a political statement or stance or decide where they're going to spend their money or how they're going to spend their, you know, their money or whatever. And then every customer has a right to how they feel about it. It's not, I mean, it's, that's my, that's my easiest answer. But I have a question for you guys. Maurice, I know that you've listened to your wrong about before and we'll probably continue to do so. So I'm interested particularly in hearing Jadi, was this your first wrong about episode that you listened to and will you continue to listen to them in the future? No, I listened to another one that you sent, <laughs> uh, maybe one or two that you sent previously. I wouldn't have it in queue. Like if you sent more episodes, I'd, I'd listen to the episode, but I'm not going to subscribe to them. It's not really my my thing. You yeah. Know? Not that it's not that it's a bad show. It's just there's a limited number of podcasts that I can listen to in any given period of time. And that has not replaced some of the other ones that I like more. Yeah, I hear you. That's fa- fair enough. And Maurice, like, has your perspective on the show changed at all? Or do you have any final thoughts? I think it's a great question to ask at the end of these episodes. How do we feel about the show in general? You know, it's definitely one of my favorite shows of 2020. You know, that's when I really got into it. I guess listened to it at the same time. I've listened to it less recently, and I can't really explain why. I just think that for me, every show has this kind of like half-life where, you know, I might get into it for a while and sort of back off. I'm definitely still into it. I'll definitely come back to it. Um, Right now, I'm kind of like in a low to moderate stage of listening to the show, but I do really enjoy their perspective. I think they're they're honest brokers, and I really admire the way that they sort of break down a lot of these historical incidents. So I'll be back listening to more of the episodes in the future. That's awesome. Well, and uh, for me, they're my number one show. Like I started last year, as I told y'all, and I caught up. I think either at the end of last year, or early this year. I think it might have been early this year. And now I like eagerly anticipate their episodes. And I remember there was an episode a couple weeks back where they were like, "Okay, so we have something to talk about." And I was like, "No, if you stop making this show, I will riot!" 
shit. I was like terrified. And then it was like, we had to go back to our, our normal production schedule. We got, we, we started producing a lot of extra episodes during the pandemic because we had a lot more free time during lockdown. And now we had to go to every other week. And I was like, whew, whew, I can handle that. I can handle that as long as I know there's new episodes. <laughs> And one thing I love about them too is that they each have separate podcasts and they call it like their podcast universe or, you know, like the MCU, like as Maurice is always referring to, because Michael Hobbs has a podcast called Maintenance Phase. And that's about one of his other passions, which is about the weight loss industry and all the myths baked into like, you know, fat and obesity sort of obsession and, and, and persecution. And then Sarah Marshall has another podcast called Wire Dads, where, and it's like a, a movie podcast. And since Jody and I have been kind of playing around with having a podcasts where we talk about romantic comedies. Yes, you heard that right. Me <laughs> and Jadi are thinking about talking about romantic comedies together. Their show looks at different movies through the lens of the dad figures, the the, the show, the movie. And like the first episode I think was on Jaws and it was really enlightening. And I was like, how did I never see that Jaws was about a dad? <laughs> Anyway, so they have all, they have this whole world of podcasts now, but they're still like really independent. They basically just seem to hang out with their buddies and I want to be their buddy. Um, if you guys are listening, because I'm going to send this to you, I want to talk to you guys about JonBenet Ramsey because I know you guys are planning a JonBenet Ramsey episode. That's Ask my pitch to Jody. What, what is like your go-to number one show? Um, let's see. I have a few. I like hardcore history. I like the 538 politics podcast. Those are probably my two primary. And then I have some uh, science podcasts that I like to listen to. Shortwave, uh, which is an NPR podcast. And then I listen to local Pelicans and Saints podcasts. What else? Real Time with Bill Maher. I listen to Joe Rogan, not every episode, but just depending on who the guest is, I listen to Joe Rogan. Oh, there's going to be some Joe Rogan in my future, I can just tell. Oh, without question. <laughs> without question. And I have some that you're going to despise even more. <laughs> I feel like Hardcore History would be the greatest show, like currently, if it had more than one episode per year. Yeah, he, and that's why I'd say that the whole consistency thing is a myth, because he puts out an episode whenever he feels like it, and he still has millions of followers. Yes. And I, like, I'm not going anywhere. I get super excited when I see a new episode. Dude, I almost you know? cry. When that, when that pops up in my feed, I'm like, wait, he back? He back for real? Right. Exactly. <laughs> a new one? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and wait, what was the number two that you said? Like, there was a second one you mentioned after Hardcore History. A 538 podcast. Oh, yeah. Noel really likes that one. I wanted to ask you, I mean, like, after the election, they did sort of a, well, we didn't really call it as right as we wanted to episode. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm going to take a break from them until, like, the next election cycle. <laughs> wait, they, wait, well, they said what? Say that again? Like, they were trying to explain the discrepancies between their predictions. Oh, oh, yeah, the polling and why why their polling was a little... And this was like the second, like this is the second time that happened to them. It happened to them in the previous election, also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but one of the things that they said is essentially they're still learning. They keep having to rework their polls, and you know, and this, that, and the other. Uh, I mean, they called the right winner this time. <laughs> So, oh, so you're still with them. That's cool. Well, yeah, because what, the reason why I like them is because they are the least biased, even less biased than NPR. They are the least biased political podcast I've ever heard. Maurice, do you agree with that? Do you think that they're the most unbiased politically? I, I don't know. I'm not sure if I think anybody is devoid of bias, but I think that, yeah. Well, no, no, not devoid. I'm saying the least biased. Yeah. 
I mean, I can see that. They have this one. You started to say they have this one. No, what well, they just they just follow the polls. They follow. So the the show is they look at politics through the lens of polling and through the lens of the numbers, basically. So when they're talking, they're not talking from a left or right perspective. They're, just, they're looking at numbers and making determinations, analysis, drawing conclusions, just based on the numbers. And and so to me, they come across as the least biased out of any politics uh, show or program or whatever that that I've ever seen. Okay, well, I'm going to take host prerogative and I'll say like my top shows at the moment before we close out today. The show I get most excited about when it pops up right now is The Brilliant Idiots and that's featuring Charlemagne the God and Andrew Schwartz. And I think I got into their show at the exact right moment where they had been around for a while. And then they had like a fantastic year last year, like with all the pandemic stuff going on. Schwartz, like he's a comedian, so he gets like this big comedy special on Netflix, makes like $40 million. Charlemagne starts his own podcasting um, empire. He's publishing books for other people within his um, within his universe, if you will. And just I just love the fact that they're just, they're just so irreverent. So I'm sure at some point I'm going to bring them to the fold. I also happen to love a whole bunch of film and TV podcasts. So my old school go-to is Unspooled, which features these, these two hosts. One is a critic, one is an actor. So she's the critic, he's the actor. And they just like have such a great vibe together. I, I enjoy them a lot. There's one called Now Playing, which is probably one of the older podcasts, period. It's been around for at least seven or eight years. And they would just like sit down, watch an entire film together and sort of comment on it. Not necessarily like snarkily, but just like some real insight as to like what the director was doing, what was happening in, in the world at that moment, yada, yada, yada. I love the um, post-credit podcast I found it this year. And they do a lot of sort of like nerd culture. So like a lot of MCU stuff, a lot of uh, DC comic stuff, a lot of like, um, I guess, anime stuff. And just looking through my feed right here on my phone, you know, a lot of news podcasts. I mean, I've, I've always liked the Daily I like Ezra Klein, who's sort of a newsy podcast. And I guess the last one I'll say for now is of the news podcast. I love Today Explained because that's the one where there is a bias, but the bias is that the host is just freaking hilarious. And he's just like so inappropriate all the time for no apparent reason, even to the point where he was like um, talking about the Academy Award nominees or something like that a couple of months ago. And he just like does this really weird like production thing where he starts playing off himself, trying to explain who's been nominated. And it was just, it was so weird and hilarious. But I said, lastly, of course, you know, Rogan's in the back somewhere he'll stay there for, for probably a long time because he's just a great interviewer and i love how he talks about being a creative person he's inspirational and of course he is uh controversial and i happen to like that so at that i'm gonna call it a day wait 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 can i just say real quick I know I got to talk a lot about my favorite podcast. I just want to say something I've been listening to a lot is the Improvement Association, you know, the new serial podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's four episodes out and it's really compelling and funny, sad, deeply researched. And then I'm getting into sleep podcasts. There's one um, called Bedtime History that like was helping me get sleepy. But like I also every once in a while I'd get kind of annoyed at the the narrator, like the way he would like because he tells history stories. And I guess they're for children, like aimed at children, like before they go to bed and everyone's gonna be like that is so disingenuous like what you just said like almost false like so I would just get like I would know just enough about some of the stuff he's talking about that I'd be like I have a problem with that but it was very helpful to fall asleep and now I'm caught up with all of his shows and then so I found this one called Sleep With Me that came up I think in one of Maurice's like Facebook posts about podcasts and I listened to one episode last night and just conked out at like 10 o'clock 
Well, that is the best. Yeah. Or is it somebody like a Ben Stein, like very monotone and dry, just talking, reading from the Bible or something? Like, what is? Mars, have you ever listened to the show? I've listened to several Put You to Sleep podcasts. So this, so they're long episodes, and there don't seem to be commercials, which is very key because both both the sleep um, sleep podcasts I've encountered don't have commercials because that interruption and usually commercials are a little bit louder than the podcast, so like it interrupts your REM cycle if you're if you're starting to sink down. It's called Baked Beans: The Adventure of Doctor Triangle and Isosceles, and honestly, I couldn't tell you a damn thing about the episode. (laughs) But it's like a made-up story. Are they reading a book? I I couldn't tell you. It just puts you right to sleep. It says, "Tune in for a bedtime story that lets you forget your problems and progressively gets more boring until you fall asleep." (laughs) So apparently, it wipes your memory too, because I remember nothing. Yeah, and I mean, talk about, I, and I began the episode talking about the Manchurian candidate, and now, like, I'm going to reference it again, because maybe, I mean, maybe they're, I'm, I'm allowing people into my REM cycle, and I don't know these people. <laughs> Honestly, that's exactly why I stopped listening to these shows. I'm like, what are they saying to me while I'm laying in my bed at night? I think, Emily, like, this is going to be a tradition where I'm going to, like, try and shut the show down before you're ready, and you're going to, like, try and stop me. <laughs> Probably. Okay, so who's next? Which one of you is, is going to pick the episode next week? Jody's next. Maurice is next. No, you next. <laughs> See? I said it first. <laughs> I think what we should do is we'll just all go about our lives, listening to our podcasts, and then the first person who hears a podcast that you want the other two to, to listen to, send it as quickly as you can. Do you know our personalities? We're just going to wait each other out. Oh, shit. Yeah, you guys are. Okay. All right, Jody, you're next. We can, we can just flip for it okay I'll, I'll be next I'll be or next here I'll, I'll flip a coin and you guys will just have to trust me okay I like I like the uh, dictator Emily just saying Jody's Jody's next. Next. well I'm agreeing yeah. with you no, I'll, I'll be next it's fine okay Jody's next. next and we're gonna listen to a boxing podcast or we're gonna listen to <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to y'all I wouldn't do that to y'all am I permitted to shut this thing down <laughs> I guess we are, we're not gonna have like an outro or something well I was gonna say like I'm bringing idiots one of them always says I gotta go to the bathroom <laughs> So, this is Maurice Carlos Ruffin logging out on the inaugural episode of Did You Hear That? Featuring Emily Stat Strong and Jody Mawindo. I'm your host, Maurice Carlos Ruffin, and we will see you next time. Don't forget to like, subscribe. (laughs) This episode of You're Wrong About. (laughs) 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 Wow, what an outtake. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a Freudian slip. We know where somebody wants to be at. Not on this show. The truth is out. She said it such conviction, too. You're wrong about it. Okay. It just, it just came so naturally. Um, I'm sorry, y'all. Okay. This is Emily Statstrong. I'd like to take a quick moment and thank Sarah Holtz and Mara Lazar, the editors of our first podcast, Civics Y'all, who I learned a lot from, as well as Shannon Satanovic, Jared Marcel, and our very own Jody Mawindo, who offered me a lot of support and advice as I was beginning this process of learning how to edit audio. Thanks, y'all.